Go ahead and take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1, please. As I said earlier, we're going to be doing a review of the book. And I pulled out all my notes from the last uh, 17 messages. We've gone through 17 sermons uh, so far. And we've, last week we concluded chapter 2. And so what I want us to do today is just have a little bit of a, of a review to kind of catch up where we've been and uh, to see where we're going. In Colossians 1, it says this, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved brother, uh, a beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then I wanted you to drop down to chapter 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That kind of gives us a little bit of an introduction of the book and the theme. I, sp- I skipped over chapter 1, verse 15, because we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that, what Paul is doing there is he's setting the, 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 the scene. He's, he's, he's letting them know where he's going with this book. Now, as I was pulling my notes out and looking over all the different things, uh, I thought, and I was actually going to go into chapter 3, I thought that we kind of need to do a recap now, I don't know if you've ever watched TV series uh, and uh, if it goes for a while or from one season to the next, a lot of times they'll do kind of a recap in the beginning of the next season just so you can kind of know where you've been. Um, a while ago or a couple years ago or so, a year ago, whatever it was, um, I had several friends that kept telling me that I needed to watch the show Lost and I had never seen it when it was on, uh, on the regular channel and I just... It was something I never watched, but I, I started watching it online, and um, I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but at first I thought it was going to be like a Gilligan's Island remake, um, but it's like Gilligan's Island meets Sci-Fi Channel, meets, you know, it's, it kind of has all these different threads and going all over the place, and I, I would find that sometimes they would stop the series and then we'd say, okay, here's where we've been. And they would kind of re- re- do a review and try to catch everyone back up to speed because they had so many different themes going on along the same path. It, it wasn't just one story with one individual narrative. It was there were sub-themes and plots and subplots and all these different things going through it. And so they needed to remind it, the readers or their listeners uh, and viewers of where the, 
the story was going. I kind of feel that's way when it comes to Paul. In Paul's writings, Paul doesn't write in just a very easy, linear fashion. And Paul doesn't always just write and follow one thread. In fact, there are, there are several times, like in this book of Colossians, actually, there are several times where there's multiple threads start going on. And, he, and Paul doesn't make it easy. He, 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 wherever he learned grammar, he didn't understand that you're not supposed to do run-on sentences. Uh, there are passages where it's four or five verses here where it's just one long sentence in the original language. And so as you're trying to dissect this and you're trying to figure out what path this goes and there's lots of different themes that are going through here, I think it's important that we kind of stop for a minute. Let's go back to the study. So I invited you to my study, my office here. You can see my desk on the screen behind me. Um, I've got my computer, my, my iPhone, and my iPad, and uh, all these different tools here, my external monitor here. So let's, let's take a look at my desk together. Let's go through this, and um, we will go through this book in a review. So first screen that we want to go to is uh, the laptop, and so it's the key people in the book that we were working on the screen there. What were the key people in the book? Well, we read that a little bit. The first one is the author, Paul. Anyone remember where Paul was writing when he wrote this? He was in prison. Very good class. And, and we may do some more interaction uh, with this uh, lesson today. It's, instead of a preaching format, it's going to be more of a, a didactic or teaching format today. So Paul was writing in prison. Uh, one of the interesting facts, uh, according to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, um, And for all who have not seen me face to face. there." And so he had never visited this church. He had never seen this church. And so when Paul, as being the author of this book, he had never actually physically been at the church, according to chapter 2, verse 1. And it makes it kind of an unusual or a distinct characteristic amongst, uh, from other writings that Paul had. Normally, Paul knew the people very well there. But Paul knew that second name on the screen there is Epaphras. Paul knew him. And Epaphras was probably the founder of the church. We read about him just a few minutes ago in verse 7 of chapter 1. It says that they learned, the Colossians learned the gospel. They learned grace and truth from Epaphras. And so Epaphras probably was in Ephesus when Paul, uh, when Paul was having his ministry in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus on his uh, third missions journey, which we would read about in Acts um, 19, at the end of 18 and Acts 19. That's probably where Epaphras met um, uh, Paul for the first time because the city of Colossae was only about 100 miles away from, from Ephesus. And so probably Epaphras was in Ephesus, heard Paul preaching, was converted, took the gospel back, 100 miles back to his, his city, Colossae, and uh, began to teach the gospel there, began to teach the message of Jesus Christ that he had learned from Paul. And so that's the next people on the screen, the key people in the book of the Colossians themselves. And these were people who, it was probably a mix of Jews and Gentiles. It was not specifically one audience. There was a, a, the, the city of Colossae at one time previous to when this book was written was a book that, uh, or was a city that uh, was prominent. It was uh, growing. It had a lot of future involved. But two things happened that really stunted the growth of it and actually made it a pretty insignificant city. The first one was that there was uh, the, the rise of um, 
the other two cities right by it, uh, Hierapolis and Laodicea. Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae, there were three cities right by each other in the Lycus Valley there. And so it was when uh, Hierapolis, Hierapolis and Laodicea became more prominent, what happened to Colossae? Colossae became more and more insignificant. And what really was the death blow was then there was a major earthquake that happened that really stunted the economic situation of Colossae. And it became a pretty insignificant city by the time Paul was writing to the people there. And so it, there was a city that had potential, at one time was growing, had a lot of positive things going there, but it really got dwarfed by a larger city right next door to it. And so, but these people, who were they? Who were the people? And they were people who, they were, they were appreciating the message that Epaphras was, was teaching them. He was, they were people who were strong in the faith. We see that they were bearing fruit and growing. However, from the letter, as we've seen throughout our study here, they began to embrace some false teaching. Or, at the very least, if they weren't embracing it, they were really questioning it. And wondering if it was really make, it made more sense. And we saw in a couple of the last two sermons what some of that message was. And that, that message included asceticism and worship of angels and legalism. We saw that in chapter 2 in verse, uh, really starting in 13 all the way down through the end of the chapter. And so it is for this reason that Paul begins to write. And that is the last, uh, the key person in the book is these false teacher or teachers. I put the, the, the plural, the S in parenthesis, because um, there is language in the book that there's times where Paul would use the pronoun in the singular fashion. And, they would, and some people think that's because there was one prominent false teacher that was really gaining their attention um, other people think, no, it was just more of a system. He was talking about the system of thought that many people were, uh, were teaching. We don't really know, but we do know that there were false teachers that were beginning to change the message. What they were saying is they were saying this. It's okay for you to worship Christ. However, you can't say that Christ is the God. You can't say that he's the only one. And this is the message they were starting to hear. They were saying, you need to follow Christ, sure, but Christ is only part of the answer. He's not the complete answer here. And in our current context today, I think that we still get that philosophy. People, particularly in our postmodern era, people aren't going to tell you, no, don't follow Christ. I don't think most people are going to tell you that or tell me that. But what, what they will say is they will say, yeah, follow Christ and listen to his teaching because he was a good teacher and he had good things to say and everything. But then they'll bring in worldly philosophy as well. If it feels good, do it. Uh, vent. Uh, all those type of things that we talked about before. And so these are the key people of the book. Well, let's move on to the next part of my desk as we're looking at our notes and everything. And here we have the purpose of the book. And we're really there's three main purposes of the book. The first one is that Paul wanted to establish a personal connection with the believers in Colossae and to express his pastoral concern for their spiritual health and well-being. There's a mouthful. So what he was trying to do is, he, because he had never been there, he had never seen them, he wanted to, instead of just sending word and telling Epaphras, okay, just tell them this and everything. No, he took time to write a letter so that they would hear from Paul. And this is in chapter 2, verse 1. You can look at the verse there, the text. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have 
For who? For you, he says. And remember, we talked about how the fact that even though he had never been there, he was struggling in his ministry for these people. And most likely that was a struggle through prayer that we saw later on that was cross-referenced in chapter 4, verse 16, with Epaphras struggling in his prayers. And so Paul was wanting to establish this connection, this personal connection with them, and to show pastoral concern for them. The second purpose of the book that we could see is that Paul wanted to counteract false teaching. We've already talked about that a little bit. The third purpose was that Paul wanted to warn the believers in Colossae about incorrect approaches to the Christian life and ministry and that were a result of false teaching. That is where we're going to go. Okay, starting next week in chapter 3, really it starts in chapter 4, but 1, 2, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 4 of chapter 3, but verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 3, they do set it up pretty well. And so that's where we're going to be going as we round out and finish the book up. We're going to be talking about how that as a result of the false teaching that they started to embrace, that Paul was instructing the, the, the Colossians that they needed to change their approach to family life, to the work place into the Christian life in general because there were some bad ramifications that were coming as a result of them starting to embrace this false teaching. So that's the purpose of the book. Well, let's take a look at another spot on the desk as we're uh, looking at the highlights of the book. Okay, so we have two devices there. Uh, my, my phone is on the left there and my iPad is on the right. And so let's look at the highlights of where we've gone so far. So first of all, let's scroll into my phone and see what notes I had made there. And we're talking about the power of the gospel as seen in Colossians. We talked about that, and that's really in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And how did, how did, how did Paul describe these Colossians? Well, they believed the gospel. It was very apparent that they embraced the gospel and they loved the gospel. But they were starting to move away from it. But the gospel was seen in the fact that they were embracing it and they were loving it. But it was more than just that. They bore gospel fruit. They had, according to this text here, they had faith in Christ. They had love for the saints. I'm in chapter 1, verse 4, if you're following along. They had faith in Christ. They had love for the saints. And they had hope that was laid up for them in heaven. And so this was gospel fruit. This was things that, that as a result of the gospel changing them, they were beginning to show that they were embracing this. And the power of the gospel was seen in them. But not only did they believe the gospel and that there was gospel fruit, we see that they were very responsible with the gospel. And again, we see that in that first chapter there. In verse uh, number 6, it says they heard it. So they listened to it, but then they understood it, it says in verse 6 as well. In, ver- in verse 7, it says they learned it because it's possible to hear something and not learn it. Isn't that possible? It's possible to hear something and not learn it. But Paul here, as he's using very descriptive terms about these people and showing the power of the gospel in their lives, they learned it from Epaphras. And then, as a representation of the Colossians, because Epaphras was from Colossae. He was a Colossian. In in chapter uh, 4, we see, it says that, it says, who is Epaphras? Who is one of you? Says that. And so as Epaphras is representing the Colossians, he gave the gospel. So they were responsible with the gospel. They heard it, they understood it, they learned it, and then they gave it out. They were responsible with the gospel. And so the applications that we were making as we were going through this text is that we need to be responsible with the gospel. If you've been given the gospel, and if I've been given the gospel, we need to give it and we need to learn it, understand it, and hear it, and bear gospel fruit. 
Well, what was another highlight? What was another theme as we were going through this book here? Let's move on over here and we'll see the supremacy of Christ. And this was several messages, I think, I think at least two messages, that we spent on this topic of the supremacy of Christ. And if you're looking in your notes in your Bible there, this would start at about verse 15 or so. And here it says this, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's just one long section that Paul wanted to stop, and he wanted to let them know that Christ was supreme, and he is preeminent. And the reason why is because Paul knows in just a few short verses, he's going to introduce their error and the, 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 the false teaching that was going to beginning to, to cause them to go astray and um, uh, this false, this uh, wrong philosophy, as he says in chapter 2 there. And so what does he do? He begins to talk about the supremacy of Christ. And we saw this in so many different ways. In the text I just read, we see that Jesus displays his supremacy by his representation. It says that he's the image of God. He's the manifestation of the invisible God. The the word is where we get the word icon from. He is the exact imprint of God. And, And remember, we talked about in our message when we were going through this text, we talked about how that the, the, the Old Testament, one of the, the big things you did not do, it was, the, it was the, the second commandment, I believe, if my memory serves me right, is do not make any graven images or do not make any likeness of God. And so that was paramount to their understanding of their relationship with God is they were not to make any icons. They were not to make any uh, idols. They were not going to make any images of what they thought God would look like because, because by inherently by doing that, you are limiting God and you are saying that God can be contained in this image. And so this was something that uh, they were not to do. So when you come to this text here and knowing that you're never supposed to do that about God, you're never supposed to make an image of him, and then you read here in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The, the people reading that or people hearing that for the first time would probably think, wait a minute here. We're not supposed to have images of God. And the reason why it's okay is because only Christ, only Jesus Christ in his supremacy, only him could correctly convey the fullness of God. And this is what Paul was trying to say. He said, Jesus is not just a spirit, one of many spirits coming from God, and that's an avenue to God. No, that's not what what Jesus is. Jesus is the representation of God himself because he is God. And for that reason, he deserves our worship. He displayed his supremacy by his creation. You see this in the text there, how he spoke the world into existence, and, and, and he was involved in creation. And the Bible here says, or Paul uses the term firstborn, the idea of first in rank, the idea is there. For in him all things were created. Creation was Jesus' idea. He was there. He was present at creation. Through him all things were created. For him all things were created. And all things 
And all of creation is continually held together by him. In the, the adult discipleship class, uh, Wayne mentioned today that, that if, if, if God ever rested, truly rested, the world would implode, okay? And he's right, because Jesus is holding creation together right now. And so he's displaced his supremacy through his creation. As we worked through our text, we also saw he displayed his supremacy by his headship. He's the head of the body, verse 18 says, the church. That shows his authority. And not only the authority, but the, the, the idea of life-giving and the, the control of the church. His supremacy is seen in his headship. We also saw through his resurrection, Paul wanted the people to understand that he was the, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He highlighted the resurrection because without the resurrection, we have no hope. And Paul wanted to make sure they understood that, that, that this is one of the reasons why Jesus was so much better than everyone else. This is what he was trying to say there. He's like, hey guys, wait a minute here. I know what you're saying. I know what you're, you're, you're listening to these people saying that, that you need to add something to Jesus. You need to go back to more asceticism, more strict lifestyle, all these things. He's saying, but no, Jesus is the only answer. He is what you need. And he, the, one of the ways that we know that is, is because he conquered death. All of us will die one day. Everyone understands that. I mean, you go through a museum and you go and you see all the pictures of all the great people throughout all the history. Um, they all have one thing in common. They all died. Okay? Every, every person's going to die. But Jesus conquered that. That's a death. We all, we all intuitively and instinctively understand that we are going to die and that we are not going to come back. We all understand that we have a limited amount of time on this earth. That's not a, a foreign concept. I, th- there was nobody here just a few minutes ago when I said we're all going to die. There was no one here that said, what? <laughs> and shock, like you didn't know that you were going to die one day. It's just a common, we all understand that's part of life. But Jesus... Jesus, in his supremacy, conquered death. And part of that, there's a lot of theological implications, and I'm going to move away from my notes for a quick second here. One of the huge theological implications of him rising from the dead is what we just sang about, that the wrath of God was completely satisfied. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, what he was saying is that God's wrath is done, it's been poured out, it's been atoned for, it's been received, and now I can conquer sin and death. And so it's a proof of that. So he displays his supremacy through the resurrection. He displays his supremacy through his worth. We saw, as we were going through this text here, how that um, he is above all things, the preeminence of Christ, that in everything he might be preeminent, it says there in verse 18. If you're going to pick a theme verse for the book, that would probably be a good choice. There could be others. People could argue for others. But 118 would probably be a very good choice to choose for the theme of this book, his worth. The preeminence of Christ is the purpose, not just the result of Christ rising from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead in order to show his preeminence. We also saw he displayed his supremacy through his deity. He's clearly called God here. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We see his deity on display here. That what Paul was saying here is that Jesus was 100% God. He's 100% God. And that was different than what the false teachers were saying. 
And this was the error. This is where, where Paul was trying to combat that. And he was saying, listen, he, in, in a few minutes, he's, we're, we're going to see that where we ended up in this last message last week, we talked about how Paul said, don't go back. Don't go back to those things. And what he was saying is that he was telling these Colossians, he was saying, listen, I know that you've, you've been changed by the gospel and that you understand the gospel and that you've learned it and there's been fruit and that you've, you've, uh, you've grown and this has been wonderful. But, but don't start listening to false teachers. Understand that you need to listen to what Epaphras was teaching you. And Epaphras probably wasn't the pastor at the time. Archippus probably was because of we know from chapter 4. But he was saying, listen to Epaphras, listen to Archippus, listen to your teachers who are giving you the gospel of Jesus Christ and from what I, and what I gave you when you and I were in Ephesus together. That's what Paul is saying here to Epaphras and to these Colossians here. And then in the, a, a final display of Christ's supremacy, we saw it was through his recon, recon, oh boy, reconciliatory work. I think I made that word up. That's probably why I can't say it. Um, but because of his reconciling work, we see that Jesus is displaying his supremacy. He's reconciling himself all things in heaven and earth. A good definition of reconciliation is this. Reconciliation must be defined as all things being put into proper relation to Christ. Those who respond to his voice will be brought into a relationship of grace and blessing. Those who oppose and reject him will receive eternal punishment involving removal from God's blessings and active outpouring of his judgment. In the end, everyone and everything will be reconciled in this sense. Everyone and everything will be subordinated to Christ. And this is what he's telling them. He's saying, don't go after these false teaching and these false gods because every one of those and every one of those teachers and me and you will be, be subjugated and be in uh, 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 subjection to Christ and subordinated to him. So he talks about this idea of reconciliation. We expanded that idea, so let's go ahead and move on to the next idea because he did talk about reconciliation. And this is where we talked about more of a timeline of where you were, what you were before. And we see this in chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. We see that we were estranged from God. This is where we were. At one time, our condition before God is that we are alienated and hostile in our minds by doing evil deeds. And so the actions of our lives were just proof of what we really were. And before Christ, that was we were estranged from God. But... What we are now, and what he's telling the Colossians now in verse 22 of chapter 1, he's saying, but you are reconciled with God. It says, and he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And so we have this idea of reconciliation, this idea of being one with God and the, the wrath being satisfied. But what do we have to look forward to? So we once were, we were estranged from, from God. Now we're reconciled to God. What, did, what, what will we be? Well, we will be presented before God, and the text says, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I don't know about you, but when I think of me being called holy, above reproach, and blameless, that doesn't seem to be the proper adjectives to describe me. 
I, I could think of a lot of other adjectives to describe myself, and I could think of a lot of other adjectives to describe you. But holy, blameless, and above reproach usually aren't the first ones that come to my mind. Why? Because I know my sinfulness. And I know that you're just like me, and we all are sinful. But here, here's the beauty of this. And this is what Paul was reminding people, these people. He wanted them to understand this because it was so important for them to understand this in order for them to be strong against false teaching is that in Christ, because of Christ's forgiveness, we are considered holy and blameless and above reproach. I, I quoted, I believe, in my pastoral prayer, Romans 8.1, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, uh, I'm sorry, uh, um, uh, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. Why? Because of the blood that, 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 that Christ gave on the cross. So this idea of reconciliation. Well, as we were going through this text here, we got to chapter 1 and verse 24. And what Paul began to do there after these great theological discussions. And what he was saying, he's saying while you're doing this, you need to continue in the faith. Why you need to do this. But what he did is then he began to back out a little bit when we get to this section of this book. And he wanted to explain to them what his ministry model was. And he was saying, okay, now I want you to understand, you understand Christ. I want you to understand me. I want you to understand where I'm coming from here and what I'm trying to do on your behalf. So let's move to the next section here and we'll see that what Paul was doing here is he was showing his ministry model. And we see this in chapter 1 verse 24 that goes all the way to chapter 2 and verse, uh, I think it's around uh, 3 or 4. And the first idea of his ministry that he wanted to understand is that it was a ministry of suffering. And Paul took joy in suffering because it had local benefit. Did you see that in verse 24 of chapter 1? He says, for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And we talked about the theological implications of that, and we also talked about how that's even possible because he had never seen those people. And the conclusion that we came to as we studied through that text is that there's a solidarity there. Um, uh, some people call it the rope principle. Some people call it being bound together. But there's this idea of that in, when Paul was suffering, it was having local benefit to them, either through example or through his ability to write and other things. And so his idea, he was able to take joy in suffering because they had a local benefit, but also had universal benefit. It was more than just that local church. It was also for the sake of his body. That is the church, it says in verse 24. And he took joy in that, not only because it had those benefits, but because it reflected his union with Christ. Because he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of my body. And remember, we talked about what does that mean when it says that he was filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is that about? Well, we remember the conclusion we came to after studying through that text was that he was referring to the fact that Jesus was no longer physically present on the earth. And so what Peter, excuse me, what Paul was doing in his physical presence on the earth is that he was enduring the suffering for Christ that Christ would have been suffering if he had been on the earth. And so what he's saying is I'm filling that up. And the reason why that was important to him, it wasn't because he was thinking that it was adding to his righteousness. No, 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 no. Because this is the same guy who wrote about being justified by faith alone. The reason why this was important is because it was a sign and testimony of his union with Christ. Because if you're going to be in Christ, you're going to suffer. That's one of the standards of Christianity. That if you're going to be with Christ, there will be suffering that you will endure. And so the result of his suffering, as he was receiving suffering, because remember, he was in prison, as you uh, stated earlier, 
This reflected, it was part of a reflection of his union with Christ. And so his ministry was a ministry of suffering. He moved on in this text and he talked about how he had a ministry of preaching. Being a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. He had a specific message. He had a specific purpose. We see there he talked about his natural energy there. He says, I toil, verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, I toil, that natural energy that he's working there. But it also had a supernatural power. So Paul's preaching a supernatural power that we see in verse 29, that his energy that he powerfully works within me. So his ministry of preaching there. He moved on in chapter 2 as we transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2. And as you know, chapter divisions aren't inspired. They weren't in the original letters. And so that probably wasn't a natural breaking point. But he moved on as he was continuing this theme. And he talked about how this idea of intercession or prayer. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea. And in chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Uh, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf. How? In his prayers. Same word is used, and so we can infer that what Paul was saying there is that he was praying for these people. And as we study this idea of prayer and how Paul prayed, we found great instruction. I don't know if you remember this or not, but for me it was a very helpful study in my prayer life. He says there that he says, for I have for you and those in Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face. First of all, we saw that his prayer was broad in scope. He was praying for people that he had not even met. But not only was it broad in scope and praying for people that he had met, but it was specific in nature. He prayed very specifically, not in generalities. He says um, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full understanding of of the knowledge of God's mystery. And then we saw another prayer in chapter 1 that Paul did as well. Now the point that we were making in that message, I don't know if you remember this or not, but again, as I said, it was helpful to me, is that my prayers typically tend to be broad in nature but narrow in scope, where I pray specifically for me or my wife, and that's the scope, it's very narrow. But it's broad in nature. I use terms, or it's easy to use cliches like, Father, be with, or God, help. And what does that mean? What are we asking God to do? Paul had a prayer life that was the opposite. It was very broad in scope. He prayed for people he didn't even meet, he hadn't even met. But it was very specific in nature. He had very specific requests that he was asking God to do in their lives. I found that personally very instructive and helpful to my prayer life. Not only when, with this idea of intercession there, but it was prompted by concern. He, he loved these people. And it was his symbolic presence that we saw there. He says, for though, in verse 5 of chapter 2, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. And so his ministry of intercession was a symbolic presence. He also finally had a ministry of exhortation. This was, we see this in verses 6 and 7 of Colossians 2. He was encouraging them, but exhortation means more than just encouragement. He was actually giving commands. I told you, I don't know if you remember this or not, the the little tidbit about the book, that chapter 2, verse 6, is where we find the very first command in the book. 
Uh, all the rest leading up to that are, are indicative statements of fact. When we get to chapter 2, verse 6, that is finally when we get commands. And here he's given these exhortations. He reminds them about Jesus, he, that Jesus is the Messiah, the incarnate God, the sovereign Lord. This is what he's going through in this text here. Again, the reason why he's doing this is because these people are starting to question whether or not they fully understood Jesus or that they had overestimated Jesus. And so Paul is doing this very uh, careful uh, Christological study. If you ever want to study Christ and his attributes, this would be a good book to go to. You can go through this book and you can see through what Paul was saying about Jesus Christ. But he exhorted them to follow Christ. He commanded them to walk. He says, you've been rooted in Christ. You've been built up in Christ. You're established in the faith. You're, be thankful. These are how the way, this is the way you should be walking your Christian life. And so this was his ministry model. Well, a couple, two other things we need to, uh, three other things we need to talk about very quickly here. Moving on, there was a philosophy to avoid. He said, avoid dangerous philosophy. And we, in what he was talking about here in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He says, we live in constant danger all the time, and we do. Just think for a few minutes of the philosophy of the world that bombards you every day. Think about all the different ads that you see on TV. Um, I, I think uh, there was a, a, a statistic that, that I had read a while ago. I'm trying to remember it right now. But I think the statistic was that there are 3,000 ads specifically geared for teenagers every day that are, are, are just given straight to that demographic on TV. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that we get bombarded with lots of different philosophy. And this is one of the things that he was warning these people from. He was saying, I want you to understand that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, and wh- whoever says anything else is wrong. Don't listen to that. You live in this constant danger of deception. And so and, and there's, it's a continual idea here in the text. And so we need to be consciously on guard at all times about wrong philosophy. So it talks about how it was empty. It talked about how it was according to human tradition, according to elemental principles of the world, or these spirits and these different spirits, these emanations from God that these false teachers were saying that Jesus was one of. He's saying, no, 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 no. That's the wrong thinking. Jesus is the God. And so he says, avoid this danger. He says, knowing, that Christ, knowing Christ will guard against being deceived. Again, he goes back to the supremacy of Christ. He determines what is truth and that he is God in human form. We have a very clear explanation of, of the deity of Christ in verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I don't know uh, of a clearer uh, passage that we could go to about the deity of Christ. So he says, no, Christ, that will guard you against philosophy, that will, uh, against wrong philosophy. And then he says, union with Christ is a fulfillment of all of our needs. Remember, it says that you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority in verse 10 there. I talked, I don't know if you remember, but we talked about instant gratification, but then there will also struggle against infinite gratification. How we, we just need, we, 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 we want something, and uh, we expect there to be no end to it. 
Okay, we want it available all times, and and, and and we don't have a concept of it running out or not having it anymore. And he was saying that no, that's not what what we needed from this. We're not going to find the fulfillment in this world. We're going to find it in our union with Christ, is what he was saying. He was saying that because of our union with Christ, um, we we are going to find fulfillment with for, uh, of all of our needs. And so let's move over to the next one here because we're going to talk about union with Christ. He develops that concept a little bit more. He talks about how that we are all part of God's people and that we have forgiveness of sins. And because of that, we do not need to fear. And, be, and so he talks about this theological uh, idea of being one with Christ. And it's a very powerful text. We won't take time to fully develop it because we're just reviewing here. But again, this was an important point that Paul was making as he was trying to get these people to understand that there was false teaching. He was trying to get these people to understand what they needed to focus on in their life. They needed to appreciate union with Christ. They needed to appreciate uh, being one with Christ because then that has great theological ramifications and practical ramifications on how we, you and I, live our lives. And so we don't have to fear, but in this idea, it, I will point this out. It says in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demand. Now, look at this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, I love this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the great irony. Let me read this to you. Uh, it says this. These powers, talking about the elemental powers and the, the people that were opposing Christ, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked. We're talking about now on the cross, okay? They stripped Jesus naked. They held him up to public contempt. They celebrated a triumph over him. You can imagine that the religious leaders of the day when Christ died, you can imagine the rejoicing and the celebration. You can imagine the cheers, the people that had walked by the cross and that were jeering him and mocking him. And when he died, you can imagine that there was probably some people that were slapping each other on the back and giving each other high fives. They celebrated a triumph over him. Look at this. In one of his most dramatic statements of the paradox of the cross, and one moreover which shows in what physical detail Paul would envision the horrible death that Jesus had died, he declares that, right here in this text, Paul declares that on the contrary, on the cross, God was stripping them naked. He was holding them open to public contempt and leading them to his own triumphal procession in Christ, the crucified Messiah. That's awesome. There's a great irony there. They thought they were triumphing over him. He was putting them to open shame. And we get to share that in our union with Christ. Well, we finished the last two sermons, last two weeks. We were talking about our freedom in Christ. So let's move over to freedom in Christ. This was two sermons. We talked about how the gospel frees us from shadows, and the gospel frees us from the fear of man, and the gospel frees us to grow. We saw that in chapter sixteen or chapter two, verse sixteen through nineteen. 
We see that there's no reason that we needed to go back to the rules and regulations and the strict codes because we, had free, we have freedom in Christ. And this is a key point in this text, and this is the reason why I wanted to review after this is to go and bring back everything to the front because he was saying, because of who Christ is, because of what he has done, because of his deity, because of my ministry to you, because of my labor, my toil, my prayers for you, because of my warnings and my understanding, and the warnings I want you to hear about this false teaching, he says, you don't need to add anything to the gospel. You don't need to go back to rules and regulations in attempts to gain favor with God. In fact, the opposite is true. You have freedom in Christ. So because the gospel frees us, he says don't go back to what is focusing on the temporal, about food and drink and holidays and all these things. He says all those things pass away. Don't focus on those things. He says, don't go back to what's based on human reason there, of people sitting around thinking and saying, well, I know that if this is, is holy, then surely this must be holy. No, go back to the Scriptures and what God says, how you will be accepted. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to what He calls of having no power for spiritual transformation. In verse 24, 23, He says, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So don't go back. Next week we're going to go into chapter 3. It says this. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. What he was telling these people is he's saying, don't focus on the temporal, don't focus on the earthly things, focus on Christ. So where are we going? Last screen. Where are we going? This is what we can expect. You can click one more time. We're going to look at what the Christian life should look like. This, the rest of this book is going to help us explore that idea. What the Christian life should look like. What the Christian home should look like. And what the Christian workplace should look like. Now, the reason why it's important that we went through all of this stuff leading up to this is because whenever we start talking about those issues right there, it's easy to develop a legalistic mentality of saying the Christian life should look like this, so I'll do this, 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 and this. The Christian home should look like this. We're going to have family devotions at 7 p.m. We're going to do this, 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 and this. And if you don't have the background of the book leading up to this, it could be very dangerous there. But all that Paul was saying is the freedom in Christ because of who Christ is and the warnings against all the, the, the things that were, uh, they were being tempted with. Now he can get into a very real practical section in the book. He, we went through great, huge depths theologically. And now we're going to get into the practicality of it. So, freedom in Christ isn't a license to focus on temporal, the passing things of life. Rather, freedom in Christ gives us the ability to think on things that are above. Next week, we're going to look at this. But right now, in, our, in the last few minutes of our service, we're going to transition to the table. We're going to transition to the Lord's Supper. And this is a good reminder to be focused on Christ and not on the things of this world. That was one of the things that Paul was saying going throughout the study here as he was teaching the Colossians and, and doing this, this whole survey here of uh, the theological implications of the gospel and the cross. What he's saying here is he's saying, don't focus on just the, the temporal things of this world. He says, your freedom in Christ causes you the ability to, to, to explore 
uh, the things that are above. That's what Christ wants your mind. That's where Christ wants your attention. He wants you to focus on what is above, not on the things of this earth. But see, the fact of the matter is, is that we talk about what we love. And our attention is given to what pleases us the most. And so what we need to ask ourselves is we need to ask ourselves, what do we talk about the most? Where is our affections? Are they rooted in things of this world or they are in things above? Those are things that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks with some practical implications. But right now, as I invite us to, to, to worship around the table, I want us to be focusing on Christ and how he is, as chapter 3, verse 1 says, he is seated above. That's an important thought, that Christ is seated above. Because it was through the death on the cross that he triumphed over sin and triumphed over death. But when he went up to the Father and sat down, what is he saying? He's saying, my job's done. He's saying, I, I've done it. It's complete. It's finished. To Telestai, that was the word he cried out on the cross, saying, it is finished. And that was a theological uh, uh, statement there. That wasn't just a, okay, I'm done on this earth. Take me home, Father. I mean, we've all said that at times. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, my work, and we saw the reason why we know this is John 17. He says, the work which you've given me to do, I've done. I've done the work that you've given me to do. And so here at this table, this is a reminder of Tetelestai. This is a reminder that Christ is seated above. He is seated at the right hand of the Father because he has finished the work, the redemptive work that's needed. Now, he's continually working on us in the sanctification process. But what this table rec- uh, uh, reminds us of in this, uh, um, the, the, the bread and the juice that we're going to have here in a few minutes, it reminds us of, of the broken body and how he completed the work that God had called him to do. So he see it the Father with his, his redemptive plan finished. So this table is for people who are believers in Christ. This table is for people who have asked Christ to save them and, and who have followed Christ by being baptized and, and showing in a public testimony of their identification with him. That's really what this ta- who this table is for. If that's not you today, I, I invite you to cry out to God and, and, and ask him to save your soul and, and partake with us. Um, this is a table where what we're doing is we're identifying with Jesus Christ. And we're saying we, we are holding to his sacrifice on the cross as our only hope and our only, our only uh, way of acceptance to God the Father.